Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. Thank you, Mr. Charlie. Mr. Charlie, I don't know if you know this, but you are known around your community as the evangelizer. And that's because he invites his friends, his neighbors, uh, to church. He shares the gospel with them. This is a man who comes not only just to read scripture before you, but lives it out each day. And I'm so grateful for our co-laborship in Christ. And thank you, Mr. Charlie, for reading our text today. And to the choir, great job. And uh, to everybody on stage, thank you so much. And I'm just going to tell you, I love seeing young people up here uh, leading in worship. Uh, What a great, great display. Um, But to just hear resounding voices coming forth today, thank you so much to every last one of you. Uh, who made the effort to come stand up here and, and lead today. I'm grateful for you, and I appreciate your leadership. And, and what a good day it is to be together. And last week we looked at the new covenant, and it makes us new like never before. So this week we're going to go a little bit deeper with that. What, is, what do you mean new like never before? What kind of change actually happens inside of us? So today we look at the new covenant as it purifies our conscience. And again, our text here in Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. And and the first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is that the first covenant had regulations, exact regulations, which means everything had to fit exactly how God prescribed it to be. And these were regulations for worship, worship which God intended, worship which was good, worship which had its time and place, as we call the old covenant. Now, I just want to clarify, when we're talking about Old Covenant and New Covenant, what we're talking about with the Old Covenant, we're talking about a covenant that God made uh, with his people as he led Moses uh, to then lead the people out of Egypt. And here's this covenant that is made. They are his, and he protected them. And it deals more with a relationship of a people group and God that created them and how they were to exist to bring him glory. But the problem with the Old Covenant is that it fell short, fell way short, because of man's sin, not because of any wrongdoing of God, but because of man's sin. And so that's the Old Covenant that we're talking about. And in the New Covenant, we're looking at what Christ has done and how it stands because of the fullness of Christ, his faithfulness. And so in the Old Covenant, you had the regulations for worship, and there was an actual earthly place of holiness, So as God is leading Israel out of Egypt, and then he's providing for them, and again and again they say, it's not enough, God, it's not enough, you're letting us down, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt, God finally says, I've had enough with you people, saying that I'm not enough. So I'm going to let you reside here in the wilderness until this generation that's badly misbehaving, which has bad hearts, hearts that are so hard towards me that no matter what I put in front of you, you're still going to rebel. I'm going to leave you here to die out. And so while they're there in the wilderness, and and we think of wilderness, we think of woods, we think of jungle, whatever it may be, this wilderness was more desert-like and mountainous. And so in the middle of these mountains, you can just imagine here's this tabernacle, a tent. Now, we're not dealing with the temple right now, because in Hebrews 9, when the writer is writing, he's talking about the tabernacle. There's a difference between the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle came first. It was a tent. The temple came later. It was built with stone. So he references the tabernacle, and in one place, as it set, there was an actual place of holiness that we're going to look at. That was the only place on earth that you could experience holiness. 
right there in the midst of the camp. And everyone would set their tents up. So as they traveled, and then as they would settle in in a place, the tabernacle was built, put in place, it was structured, and then everybody structured their tents around their tabernacle. The tabernacle was the main focus. Everybody's tents that they lived in faced the tabernacle. No matter where they were positioned, they faced the tabernacle. That's important. Hold on to that. Maybe you want to jot that down. And so, only where the tabernacle rested was the place of holiness. And this was only for Israel. So when we look into the Old Testament, what we see is that God chose a people for himself named Israel. And then there were a bunch of other people all around the world, okay, where holiness did not exist. And so we see a major problem that there's sin and separation from God. And we think, okay, here the tabernacle, here a group of people, everything's going to be fixed, right? Well, not so fast, my friends. Where a tent was prepared, meaning that materials came from Israel's possessions. So as they made this tent, this tabernacle, it came from all the possessions in which they plundered the Egyptians. So as they're leaving, they're receiving all of this material, and God's saying, hey, you're basically robbing them. I give you full rights. You take everything that is theirs, all the gold, all the silver, all the cloth, and you take it with you because I have a great purpose for it. So he took from them what was rightfully his, and then they are led out of Egypt. Well, later they collect these things to make the tabernacle and all that would go into it. And you can see more of that in Exodus 25 and 26. But although this was instructed by God, it was made by human hands, which is also important for us to pick up on today. So you write that down. Made by human hands. Although instructed by God, it's human hands that put together this tabernacle. So being a tent, there were limitations. This tent was not to last forever, which means that a tent needed repair. Just as if you would patch up a tent, there were times in which this tent would have holes, that it would need repair. It was not everlasting. The tent could only be in one place at one time, which means it could not be omnipresent. It couldn't be in many places at one time, but only one direct location, and then surrounded by Israel, cut off from the rest of the world. So, it's temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. So then, we see that it was temporary, never meant to be permanent. And then, in these first five verses, we see also the examination of the furniture which is in the tabernacle, which is also important. So maybe when Charlie was reading this, you're going, wow, where is he going to go with this today? All of it applies. All of it is a shadowing, a foreshadowing of Christ. So we look at the furniture. It's, it's like when you go into a furniture store. And I like going to a furniture store every now and then. I like to go see Tim Ortmeyer. Uh, when I go visit him, that gives me a good excuse to go check out the newest recliners that they have. And men, we like recliners. Maybe ladies, you like recliners too, which I think is awesome if you do. Um, but we walk into a furniture store, and there you sit down, and Tim says, hey, try out this recliner. And you sit down, and he says, hey, you press this button, and it has uh, a massage that's going on. And you're going, well, that's nice. I could really get used to this. And then he says, hey, you just pull this compartment out right here, and you push that button, and you place your drink right here, and it keeps it cold. And I'm thinking, 
I need this. You know, like I really need this. Like this would enhance everything entertainment in our house. And then just how comfortable the recliner is and you don't want to get out. And, and that's a good selling point. But Tim's not trying to sell me on anything. We're just hanging out. And so with that, you, you, you see how good the furniture is. You examine it. You don't go into a furniture store and say, hey, that looks good. Just, just put it in truck. Let's go. No, you, you want to sit down. You want to see what it's all about. And this is what the writer's doing when it comes to this point in the text. He's saying, hey, let's examine the furniture. Let's give it a look. So you'll know all about it. And so when he mentions these things, they're going to go, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Ever since I was a, a little child, I've heard about all of this furniture. So here are a few pieces of furniture that are mentioned. The pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle. See, there was a first section called the holy place. And so in the holy place, it was the lampstand. And it gave light to the tabernacle. Because you can imagine, they just didn't have a light switch, which they could just flick on and then, boom, there's light. They needed a lampstand. And so this lampstand gave light to the whole tabernacle. But this light was not just for the tabernacle, but it's shedding light on what is to come in the future. And that would be Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate lampstand. So as you walk into the tabernacle, you see a lampstand, but you also see a picture of Jesus being the light. And not only, not only the light of the tabernacle, but the light of the whole world. You see, there's something greater coming that would be not just for Israel, but for the whole world. So Jesus is the light of the world. He is the lampstand. You would see this. It's the first thing you would see you walk into the tabernacle. The next thing you would see is the table of showbread. Here on this table, there were 12 loaves reminding Israel of the 12 tribes and how God sustains them. This would be a constant reminder to only the priests now who could go into the holy place. Anybody couldn't just walk up in there and say, hey, I would like to go see these things. No, you had to be a priest to enter into this first section. But this is also a foreshadowing, not just how God has sustained the nation of Israel, but how he would truly sustain his people through his son Jesus when he would give him as the bread of life, as we see in John chapter 6. So this table here with bread is an image that Jesus is the bread of life, which Israel was never full. They could never have enough. And spiritually, they were darkened. They were empty. They needed something that was of good sustenance. That's Jesus. And that's where we find our full sustenance in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And then as you went further, you would see the golden altar. Now, if you're, if you're reading close, what you're going to say is, hold on, the golden altar is in the second section, not the first section, Brian. And as it reads, that is correct, but it typically sat in the first section. And I'll explain why it's referred to as being in the second section. Okay? So it stood just in front of the second curtain. So you had the first curtain, you walked in. That was the first section. You had the lampstand, you had the table, then you had this golden altar, and then you had another curtain, which only one person, one time a year, could go behind that curtain, and that would be the high priest, okay? And so their coals were taken and used on the Day of Atonement, that was the one day, okay, by the priest, by the high priest, and he would go behind the curtain. But every day, as there was the golden altar there, each morning and evening, the priest burned incense, so always in the middle of camp, there was incense coming from the tabernacle. Okay, this matters. This matters because we see in Psalm 141 verse 2, David related prayer 
to incense. And so as David is relating to incense, he's just not talking about some incense that you may burn in your house. He's relating to the incense that was in the tabernacle. And he's saying, our prayers are like this incense. And listen to him. He says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So as we pray, it is a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. This is the incense that is now lifted up. You don't see it physically. But as you pray, your prayers are like incense to the Lord. And here you thought you were maybe bothering God or God didn't have time for you. But your prayers are like a sweet incense before Him. And so with this, Christ intercedes for us. Christ is the one who makes this intercession. In Romans 8.34, we see this. He is the sweet-smelling aroma. So as we pray, it's not that God loves our prayers because of us. God loves our prayers because of Jesus. Hold on to that. God loves our prayers because of Jesus. How Jesus puts us in a right standing before him. So then you move into the second section, which is the Holy of Holies. And there is the Ark of the Covenant. And again, you just can't go touch the Ark of the Covenant or you would die. Okay? The priest would not dare touch this Ark. And inside this Holy of Holies and inside this Ark of the Covenant... There was a golden urn holding the manna, which is bread. This was a reminder of how Israel, for Israel how God had provided for them. He is their provision. Also in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff that budded, which meant that God provided a line of priests to serve. So as all of these priests are serving, it goes back to saying, remember, it's because of God that you have this position. And then there was the tablet of the covenant. The old covenant is, was there as a representation in the Ark of the Covenant, reminding the people of his laws, the covenant which was made. And then you had the mercy seat. And there, the mercy seat, on the Day of Atonement, they would take the blood from the sacrifice and they would sprinkle it. He would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And this would act as a covering for the tablets that were inside the Ark of the Covenant, which means it was a covering for the broken law. Because although they had a covenant, nobody could uphold the covenant, not even the high priest himself. And so when God on that day of the day of atonement, he would see the blood instead of the broken law. It's quite significant. And here's why. Because relationally, in order to be God's people and for him to look out for them and guide them, there needed to be blood sacrifice. And so relationally for Israel, when God would look at them, he would see blood. He would not see that they have broken his laws. And this is good news. Relationally, this was good news for them. But it was only relational. It could not work inwardly. And so you may have thought that those, because they were Israelites, that every last one of them are right now in heaven. Simply not true. Because if they relied on the old covenant, they fall short. Just for everybody, like everyone who's been born on this earth, the only hope you have is Jesus. When Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, he didn't mean like that point and then ever after. He meant for all time. Jesus has always been the way to the Father. Jesus can only be the way to the Father. And this point is being made. He's saying, look, you have the tabernacle. You have all 
of the furniture. These things are good, but they in themselves cannot change you inwardly. And then you look at verses 6 through 10, and we see that also this priesthood was temporary. So according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, if you're in first century and you're a Hebrew and you're hearing this, either you already knew this at this moment because of what Jesus did, or you're hearing this and you're astonished. Because this is all you ever knew about worship, true worship. And now you're hearing that, no, 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 there's more to it, and that that can never fulfill what is lacking in your life. It's only a ceremonial cleansing. It covers the unintentional sins. It never could cover man's sin problem, his separation from God, meaning that the conscience of the worshiper is still filthy with sin. So there they are going, if I don't have Jesus, my conscience is filthy with my sin, which means I need a cleansing of conscience. I need a purification of conscience. So when we talk about conscience and we talk about the heart, we talk about the emotions, all of that is inside of us. We don't see it as we see the physical attributes of ourselves. And so it's hard for us to dissect what we're talking about when I say conscience. So let me use a Greek term here, this word conscience, sunetesis, which means to be one's own witness. That's your conscience. You're your own witness. You know whether you did right or wrong. You know whether you cheated in that moment or not. Truly, deep down, you know. It denotes an abiding consciousness whose nature is to bear witness to one's own conduct in a moral sense. It is the self-awareness. It's the faculty of the soul which distinguishes between right and wrong and prompts one to choose the former and avoid the latter. So now we get to this point and you say, I knew it. See, because Brian, you say that according to the Bible that no man is good. That's what the Bible says. Check out Romans 3.10 in your quiet time. There it is. But we do have this moral compass in us that directs us into what is right and what is wrong. We do have that. We make decisions every day. And so based on your culture, based on your surroundings, your upbringing, what's inside of you, you make decisions on what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And there's a lot of conflict when it comes to our conscience with other people because all of our consciences do not line up together. So here's a statement that I want you to remember, that although our conscience acts as a moral compass, it is a broken compass without Christ. It's broken. It doesn't work. You're saying, hey, I'm directed, I'm doing things that are good, I'm doing things that are bad, but your moral compass is broke without Jesus. All of us have broken moral compasses in our lives. So, We have something that's lacking. We're guided by the flesh, which means that you may be here today and you have a guilty conscience about something. Right now, you may be feeling guilty about something you did, something you know you did, something that you should not have done, something that only you know what you did and nobody else knows. And you feel awfully guilty about it because you've been hiding it. So you carry around a guilty conscience. Or maybe what you did really wasn't that bad, but for some reason, the way you're seeing the picture, you just feel so guilty about it. So you carry around this guilty conscience, which means you can't have peace. 
You want peace in your heart right now, but you always feel guilty about something, which means that because you feel guilty, there's no way that you're going to pray to the Lord because you just feel too gross. I mean, you're here today, but you're afraid that everybody's going to see it written on your forehead what you've done. And so here you are with this guilty conscience. Or maybe you have a heavy conscience. Maybe there's something weighing heavy on you and has been for months, and you don't know what it is. And it's driving you crazy, but you have no peace. Just a heaviness about you. You're lethargic. You're lazy. You don't want to do anything. You feel like you don't have any hope or any purpose. Like, you go to work every day, but to what avail? What's happening? And you just have this heavy conscience, and you don't know why. Maybe a troubled conscience. Maybe a fearful conscience. You're always fearful. You're always troubled. You're always on edge. You want to be at peace, but every little thing just sets you off. It, it sends you into hiding. You can't trust people. You, you have jealousy based on this. So your relationships are struggling right now because a husband can't trust his wife or a wife can't trust her husband or a boyfriend can't trust a girlfriend or a girlfriend can't trust a boyfriend or a friend can't trust a friend because there's this jealousy. And you're going, why am I so jealous? Why am I so troubled in my conscience? Maybe a doubtful conscience. You doubt everybody. You doubt everything. You doubt whether what we're talking about today is even true. You doubt that there's a God. And you have this doubtful conscience and you go, I don't know why I doubt. I just doubt. I doubt all of these things. Or you have this striving to have a clear and clean conscience. You're trying. You're working really hard to feel better inside. You may look great on the outside, but on the inside you're still a wreck, but you're really trying. You're, you're trying different methods. And I think a good illustration of this uh, could be a cute little movie that's come out recently, Inside Out. Any of our kids in the room? Y'all seen Inside Out? Just raise your hand. All right, good, good. So Inside Out, it's a Pixar film. It's really neat. Um, I just watched the trailers to kind of get the general idea. My wife gave me this idea, so I'll, I'll run with it. My wife gives me an idea, I go with it. Okay, I'm smart, okay? But uh, in this movie, there's a little girl named Riley. Is that right? Okay. Okay, Riley, she moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, right? All right, so they're moving uh, to San Francisco, and she's dealing with all these emotions. But what's cool, this movie kind of goes inside the mind, and you have five different characters which act as emotions. And so not only does Riley have these emotions, but also her mother has these emotions, and her dad has these emotions, and there are five emotions. It's joy, anger, disgust, fear, and sadness. And so in their conversation at the table, this is the trailer part I was looking at, at the table, they're having this conversation and the dad's asking the daughter some questions and she gets a little smart with him and dad, you know how that works, right? And so she gets a little smart with him and it shows which type of emotions are taking over in that moment. And they're kind of having these little gears that they shift and and controls the mind. But it kind of gives a picture in one sense how we're guided by our emotions. And in one part of the movie, Joy and sadness get lost. I don't know where they went. Hadn't seen the movie. They get lost. Okay, so they're not there. And that means that anger, disgust, and fear now take over. And so the girl's attitude completely changes. She's not the same girl because of anger, disgust, and fear. And when I heard that part, I thought, man, that's good. That's what Curry and I were talking about. I said, that's so many of us. We're guided by our emotions, and we're without joy. But see, all of our emotions are misguided in a sense, by our flesh. 
Here we have the flesh working in us, and we have all of these emotions that work inside of us, and we want peace. We want to be in right standing before God. We, we want to make good decisions. We want to, every day, make the most of our lives. We have all these emotions taking place. Jealousy, apathy. We can name, uh, name so many different types of emotions. Here's the deal. Nothing external can heal our brokenness within Although we have these different emotions at work and it's misguided due to our flesh, there is nothing around us that can heal us inwardly. It's like the old covenant tabernacle. You may have come here today and you're saying, as long as I get to church today in God's house, then I will be better. I will have peace. And maybe you're finding that right now you don't have peace, even as we're talking about this. Because the thing is this, this isn't God's house. Okay, you go, well, hold on. What do you mean it's not God's house? Because God's house is not built with human hands. The last time I checked, although there's some great architecture around here, this was built with human hands. Unless somebody has something to tell me. I don't know. It's not archived anywhere. So what is this place? What is this place we're in right now? This is a home. This is a home. This is one big home. Instead of y'all all coming to my living room, because we wouldn't all fit, okay? Instead of coming to my house, we come here. This is a big home where the church meets. Where does God reside? Not in this building, but in the believers. Shock factor over now? You doing okay? Check your pulse? We all right? Because here's the point. If you walk into this building thinking this is where God's presence is and that you just walking in this building is going to make everything better, you've missed it. That's why just coming to this church building is not going to heal what's inside of you. Now, you hear the message. You look at the Word. Yes. But just being here, and, and get this. You can be a greeter here at Perimeter Road Baptist Church. You can be a teacher here. You can help people when they come in the parking lot and and finding their way around the building. You can even be baptized with water and there be no inward change. No inward change. Because all of those things in themselves are still external. There needs to be an internal work within us. You can even possess a Bible. As Charlie may mention, you may not even have a Bible. And you can take one of those in the pew and walk out of here and say, I have a Bible. Everything's good now because I have a Bible. I don't know what it says, but I have a Bible. Just possessing a Bible does not create inward change. Wearing a cross around your neck does not bring inward change. And you have people who say, oh, man, pretty necklace. That's that's a great necklace. And and anytime I see somebody with a cross or a cross tattoo or whatever, I'm going straight to testimony. Hey, man, tell me what that cross means. Well, I I just like it. It's it's pretty. Uh, Well, do you know a cross is actually a very disgusting symbol from old times that you want to talk about it? And you say, Brian, you get too serious many times. Yeah, actually, I do. But let's get serious about the gospel, right? And so with this... You may have a nice chain, and if you're wearing a cross necklace today, please do not hide it. In fact, if you have a cross chain, why don't you just put it on the outside, okay? Don't be afraid of what people think, all right? You have a cross necklace, but it does not bring inward change. You could take a physical cross. You could even dress in a robe. 
You can put a crown of thorns on your head and you can march around the world and it not bring any inward change into your life. You get it? This religiosity that we have, let me just be good. Maybe that'll fix things that are inside. No. You could go seek the approval of those around you. Hey, can you help me feel better about myself? Can you help this peace that I'm lacking? Can you give me some advice? I need help. Will you talk to me? But then there's negative things that we feed on as well. Maybe you're here today and you have a drug problem. And you're really struggling. And you're afraid that if we know that, that we won't have anything to do with you. That's not true. Because we all have problems in our lives, all different sins. Maybe right now you're struggling with your sexuality and you are just crumbling inside. And maybe you're experimenting right now, thinking that that's going to bring inward peace in your life. Who knows what it is that you're going after, these negative things, but you're trying to find something, something. If I can just cover up my pain, my heavy conscience. See, just know that as you cover up, you're adding another layer to the pain. Layer upon layer. All these things do not bring about a true inward change for the glory of God. You can cover things up for a moment, but it adds another layer of pain to your life. Whatever you run to, whether it's a substance, whether it's a person, whether it's a one-night stand. You know, we, we like to hit on homosexuality. That seems to be a hotbed. But what about just sexual immorality in general in all of our lives and we run to these things and we think that I'll feel better. I will feel better if I embrace this. And it just puts one more layer of pain, one more layer of frustration, one more layer of guilt. And here you are and you're not at peace. I appreciate what Jeremy Pierre says. He's uh, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also an elder at Clifton Baptist Church. He says, God designed our hearts to desire what he desires. We were made to find joy in what he finds joy in. Be disgusted by what he's disgusted by. Be saddened by what grieves him. Be angered by what angers him. And fear the things he identifies as threatening. In other words, our desires and the emotions expressed by them worship God as they imitate his. The main hindrance is that our hearts are inclined to find joy in what he hates. To be disgusted by what he says is good, to be fearful of what he says brings life. Our emotions are corrupted by our fallen condition and we need the redemption of Jesus Christ and the only one who managed his emotions perfectly to the glory of God by valuing what God valued. And you can see this in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Jesus valued what God valued. Our problem with our conscience, we do not value what God values naturally without Christ. We do not value what God values. We can, we can value things, but they're misguided, again, by the flesh, meaning we do not value what God values. So the turmoil in our conscience, in our soul, is that we do not value what God values values. So what we choose to value is never enough. Do you get that? What you choose to value is never enough. 
And so the whole point here is he's writing to the Hebrews. He's saying, you have all of these things, this tabernacle, you have the furniture, all these outward things, but there's something inwardly that has to happen. We must look to the one who tabernacled among us, not the physical tent that was in the wilderness, but no, Jesus who came and tabernacled among us, John 14, 6, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And actually that's in John chapter 1. So this word becomes flesh and he dwells among us. He dwells. That word dwelt among us means tabernacle. It means to encamp. It means to pitch a tent. Has Jesus come to encamp in your life? Does he dwell in your life? So we see in verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you catch that? How much more? to purify our conscience from dead works. All of our works are dead. Only the blood of Jesus can purify our conscience that we can do good works before the Father. So if you're thinking, and if you're of that opinion, that you can just do good, and your good can outweigh your bad, and that you'll get to heaven that way, you're wrong. All your works, even the works you think are good, are dead works before God. That word dead in the Greek means corpse. No life. No pulse. So our works are dead without the blood of Jesus Christ. But when we trust in what Christ did on the cross, and His blood covers us because we place our faith in Him, and He redeems us for a great purpose, then we can do good works. And the, and the statement is, how much more? And I think that's a good question to ask in everything that we face. You say, hey, I'm feeling better because I'm hearing this message and thinking Jesus is going to heal everything. Jesus can heal you, yes. But understand that just listening to this message, even in itself, is not enough. There is a requirement to repent and follow. And so when you leave here and you're tempted with different things, you go, how much more? How much more? I could, I could go to this environment, this neighborhood, this corner that I know I should stay away from, but how much more is Christ? How much more? I could go to my laptop and I could go spend all afternoon on football, all afternoon, all afternoon, and spend that time and ignore family altogether. I could go do that today because I'm owed it. And you know, nothing wrong with a hobby, but when you neglect your family, there's a problem. And you could go, but you need to ask, how much more can Christ fulfill me 
than this sport can. And, and on and on and on it goes. The struggles that you have in your life, the question you need to ask is how much more can Christ fill me? Can He cleanse my conscience so that I can do a good work for Him? When tempted, how much more? Because of our misguided emotions, we are an emotional wreck apart from Christ. But in Jesus, we find true emotional health. Now, at this point, I know you're saying, Brian, you're not a doctor. How qualified are you to talk about emotional health? Well, I'll just make a statement that I I do believe there are times when you need medicine, yes. But I do believe there are many cases that we run to medicine first before we run to Christ. And that we look and say, hey, no, 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 you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let's go to the professionals. And I greatly respect the professionals and what they do. Don't mishear me. But understand that there is power in the blood of Jesus. We don't just sing about it because it sounds pretty and because we sang your favorite hymn today. No, there's power in the blood of Jesus. And so this emotional wreck that you have going on inside of you can be healed as you look to Jesus. Because here's what happens. When you look to Christ, all things come into order. The picture becomes clearer. You understand why you have suffering and that your suffering isn't just because God's mad at you or or you're not on God's team, but through your suffering, you can advance through it and you can glorify God in your suffering and be made stronger and glorify God more. Through the good times, your focus is on Christ because you're so thankful that every time he provides for you, it's, it's because of his goodness and not your own. So inside, what does it look like? What's happening? Well, As we see in Hebrews 10, your hearts are sprinkled clean, leading to a good conscience. So inwardly, here's what happens when you follow Jesus. You are now given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does come to live inside of you. That does actually happen. It happened at Pentecost. And some crazy things happened that day because the message of Christ went out throughout the whole known world that day. But the thing that you need to notice with the Holy Spirit at work is it changed men from whom they once were to who they now are in Christ. They are a new creation. And their conscience is now guided by the Spirit so that they can do what is good, their decision-making. They can make good decisions honoring to God. That they have the right, proper motives. It is a conscious heart thing all connected together which we can't dissect, but the Holy Spirit can. So do you have the Holy Spirit living in you today? Meaning... Have you put your full faith and trust in Jesus, what he did for you on the cross? And if you do have the Holy Spirit, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and reign in you? Or is that old flesh, which still exists, is that flesh guiding your emotions? See, because here's what happens in salvation. What do we receive in salvation? Well, we receive new life. We receive an inheritance that's much greater than any inheritance in this room We could add up all of our inheritance. We could go seek it out. What's going to be our inheritance? We could lump it all together, and it falls miserably short to the inheritance we have with God. So we receive a great inheritance, which means we will be with him throughout all of eternity, which means you shouldn't fear death. You should trust fully in what God provides and knowing that life is before us. I said that real quick, right? And you're pondering that. But if you ponder that more on the great inheritance that we have, you understand that true life is before us, and there is a purpose for why we live right now. All of these things are great, and this is what we receive with salvation, but this is also what we receive with salvation. Salvation means this. You have been made right. You have been made right. And you can now do right. Because he is right. 
There it is. You have been made right, and you can now do right, because he is right. Last time I checked, it's not like we just are an automatic doing right all by ourselves, are we? We automatically mess things up. We automatically fall short. We do some things that are right, but it's not on autopilot. But when you look to the new covenant, and Jesus comes in tabernacles among you, and he works in your conscience that you can do good works, that means you have now been given to give to do right before God. I'm excited about our inheritance. I'm grateful for forgiveness. But are you also excited that you can do right before God? Maybe you'll ponder that this week. Do I consider it a joy that now I have been given the privilege to do right before God based on the new covenant standards? Put your faith and trust in Jesus today. We make ourselves available. I'll be in the back. Some pastors up here. If you want to follow Jesus, come talk to us. It's about believing what you've heard today and what Jesus has done on the cross. Confess your sins, that you're a sinner, you fall short of the glory of God. Trust in what Christ did for you. Church, do you believe what you've heard today? Go back and examine the scriptures if you find some conflict. If you want to give me an email, do it. But look, you must understand that it's not the outward things that's going to bring you peace. It's the inward work of Christ, which you have received. If there is repentance and you're trusting fully in what he's done for you. So may Christ dwell richly in you this week. May the power of the Holy Spirit overwhelm you to obedience for the glory of God. May you go with a good conscience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that there is a true inward work in what you're doing in us. We thank you for all the outward things. This place where we worship is good. We thank you for it. Your Bible, your, your Word is so good. God, thank you that we can read your Word and these words can penetrate our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Bible. God, we thank you for the church, the Christians around here to support one another. God, thank you. Well, but may we be aware that there needs to be this inward change, the working of the Holy Spirit. May we be aware of the Holy Spirit's presence within us. May we not treat him like the kid that's sitting at the end of the table that we just ignore or pretend that he's not there. But may we know that the Holy Spirit is with us in every decision we make. He's there. May we not deny him, but may we trust in him. I pray that this week you would do a great work through this church and through the church throughout the world. That we would go empowered by the Holy Spirit. Work salvation, Lord. Be glorified. May we leave in peace, in the peace of Christ. Surpasses all understanding. Thank you that you purify our conscience through this new covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen.